HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. Hope everyone is doing safe, taking care of themselves. We are really excited to sit down with the co-founder of the Artifact Cider Project, Soham Bot. We talk about New England. We talk about the apples of New England. We talk about the history of cider in New England. And we talk about their tasting room and some of the incredible cider experiments that they're doing. It's a really fun conversation. makes me very nostalgic for Boston. And I have to say, the cider, it's bang on good. And then we go into the archives from some of our Danger Bird record sessions with Tropa Magica. It's a really fun, psychedelic, really fun, energetic vibe. Perfect for a Sunday afternoon or whenever you're listening. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on hrn.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse.
So, um, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. We really appreciate um, you being on the show. Thanks for having me. So, let me also thank you for sending over those ciders. Uh, absolutely delicious. I drank all six cans of it. Um, and while I love the cider, all I also... Well, no, no, no. <laughs> Not with the newborn. I'd be on the floor, man. I'd yeah. like... It's the perfect. It's a big. It's a. It's a tall boy. I feel like I'm. I, I like wanted. I'm good. Well, right now, I'd, I'd probably fall over. Um, but I love the cider, and I love your story because you didn't start in cider. You started in biotech, I believe. Um, but yep. did your love of cider start while you're in biotech, or does it go back even further than your professional career? Yeah, so it um it goes from it goes before my professional career. Um, you know, I I became into cider uh, like what I call like a unicorn customer. I discovered cider mm. right when I discovered craft beer and started drinking wine and everything like that. Once I basically graduated from college drinking, um, and so it was always <laughs> a kind of thing for me at a pretty early at a pretty early age. Um, there weren't that many options back then. Um, and so what we used mm -hmm. to do was we'd kind of like look around just the same way we would be searching around for craft beer. And back then it was like arrogant bastard was like, you know, big time craft beer. Sure. And there was like, you know, Woodchuck, which was our big time craft cider back then. Um, and so, yeah, that's when the seed was planted. Uh, I have quaffed quite amount of chuck in my life as well uh the pear variety if i remember correctly yeah yeah they had that they had 802 which i really liked back then <laughs> um but our tastes you know tastes have changed since then a little bit yeah and look i think it's one thing to probably enjoy cider it's another thing to maybe brew a more delicious mousetrap um when did you start thinking that you wanted to make your own? Uh, so it was, I think that, you know, right, right around then I, I was always a, um, a kind of like dedicated home cook, home fermenter. Mm -hmm. I was really into um, like making bread and sourdough and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I actually probably would attribute the like 2006 like release of no need bread is probably like what really kicked off my uh, <laughs> fermentation journey. Um, and mm. I think cider, so we, we're lucky that we have uh, access to such good apples and to good juice up here in the Northeast. Um, and so I was, I was able to get some pretty, pretty high quality, um, you know, raw, uh, raw juice that, that probably kicked off the first um, journey into cider making. Um, and so you know, I think for me, it was always hobby or, you know, going out and drinking it, comparing it to what I had out in the stores or whatever. And then it took a few years to really consider doing it professionally. You know, a lot of people know about home brewers when it comes to making beer. In fact, you know, you see those kits, you can buy them at the store, make your own beer at home. But I think the idea of fermenting and making your own hard cider is a little less common. 
Did you have a roadmap? Where did you go? I mean, this was the mid-aughts, so there's, I imagine, some stuff on the internet, but how did you figure out how to take raw apple juice and turn it into cider? Um, well, the good thing about cider is that if you get raw apple juice and just let it sit, it will, it'll just turn into cider on its own. Um, and so it can happen by mistake. Um, back then there weren't that many resources. So there were a handful of Mm. books mainly written kind of, there was one book that was focused around cider, cider culture, um, kind of different approaches around the world. There was another couple books and articles that were more focused on the homesteading lifestyle. You know, like you'd grow your own apple trees and then you'd have your own cider at home. (laughs) Uh, You know, like it's Mm -hmm, kind of part mm -hmm. of that vibe, Um, but very little in terms of the real art and craft of it. Um, That, to be honest with you, a lot of it in the beginning was learning through trial and error um, and having conversations with Mm. other cider makers. Um, I was lucky enough in my early cider journey to... Um, basically there was this cider company called West County Cider that's based out here in Massachusetts. They're actually the first modern, first modern cidery, uh, kind of in the modern era. They started making cider in Massachusetts in 1984. And they had a couple ciders that were mm. sold in cork and cage bottles made with apples that I'd never heard of, like Baldwin apples, Bramley seedling. Um, and I was fascinated by what they, what they were making to the point where I just like called them incessantly until like at their house, because that's where they used to make it. And until finally Judith Maloney, the, um, the owner, she kind of was like reluctantly let me come and visit, um, you know, on my, on like, it was like my 25th (laughs) birthday. I'll never forget. And I went up there and, uh, you know, she showed, she showed me their home orchard. I got to taste, tannic apples for the first time we i tasted uh, Mm. ciders that were made from apples i'd never heard of before and it was really kind of an epiphany moment for me um and so slowly and steadily through their mentorship um you know i was able to at least figure out uh, the beginnings of like how to make cider um and how much effort has to go into sourcing how much effort has to go into the thought process behind what you're what you're trying to do and what you're trying to say, so I I'm, I really owe them a debt in terms of uh, those early days of 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 teaching me a little bit more about thoughtful cider making than I guess like the direction that I might have gone in had I uh, kind of followed my my professional career, which was more in the kind of industrial biotech world, um, and so it sure. was definitely it was definitely like a very positive influence on my current style. Mm. Um, I want to get to that style and your approach in a minute, but, you know, in making the jump um, and saying we're going to do this full time, you know, one of the biggest hurdles in the CPG or even just drink category is distribution, marketing, shelf space, getting people to go, I have woodchuck, you know, I have this cider. How did you in the early days break through? How did you get people to carry and distribute your drink? Yeah, that's a that's a great question um, and, and insightful too. The uh, you know the um, in the early days, so it was uh, Jake Mazar, who's my co-founder, is one of my he's one of my best friends. We grew up together. 
um, you know, he was really, he really put a lot of the work into like kind of the like boots on the ground. You know, I would, I would make the cider. We were both working full-time jobs. I would drive out to Western Mass where we had like a little thousand square foot garage. I would be making the cider all out hours of the night, the weekends, and I would leave bottles there for him. He would come pick them up and then drive them around places. And I think that for him, at least in the early days, we were lucky to have some retailers who just like really quickly understood what we were trying to do. Um, and those, those retailers were sophisticated buyers. And I think that they helped mm. help us to like kind of craft the narrative around why what we were doing was a little bit different, you know, and the, it's been about seven years since we first started and we were so small when we did. Um, but in those early days, like even the category or the idea of craft cider was still somewhat novel. And so a lot of it was, sure. you know, describing the flavor profile of what we have as being not appley on purpose, you know, uh, drier, uh, you <laughs> know, like less sugar and less sweetness because you don't necessarily need that to make a great cider, um, to talk, to give the story of the fruit that we are working with and some of the history behind that fruit. You know, we were in the early days working with a lot of Baldwin apples that are, you know, have been in Massachusetts for over 200 years and things like that, that help people understand that this was more than just your kind of garden variety, you know, cider maybe made from concentrate or something like that, um, that this was like a true craft product. Mm. Um, and we started small, you know, the other important part of this was, you know, it took us three years or so before we were ready to both completely go like full time into it. Um, and that slow build allowed us to make a lot of mistakes and learn from them and also to kind of mm. figure out what worked mm -hmm. out there. Um, and to also like guide the portfolio, at least in that direction, you know, some people, when they start like an entrepreneurial venture, will have an idea, raise a bunch of money and then dig their way out of the hole. You know, um, we kind of did it as a much slower burn. You know, we put our savings into it. Little by little, eventually all of them were in it. Um, but, like, <laughs> but, you know, just like slowly and steadily kind of building it and focusing on our local communities and making sure that people understood what the what the value of it was um, before we tried to kind of expand that out into the larger world. And so we have pretty deep roots in Massachusetts because of that. Um, and, it, and it still helps us today, I think. Yeah, and I, I want to get into those roots in your mission statement um, after after the act. But before we, we go to 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 break, um, you didn't quite leave the biotech world behind. From my understanding, you've applied some of your scientific learnings to brewing your cider. Can you talk about what you brought to the process from your previous job? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think. Uh, you know, one of the things that we don't, I don't talk too much about is, is the scientific aspects of what we do. And, you know, I think that there's a little bit of it where I think people lose, uh, they lose like the perspective that, that we do do a lot of things in, in a very artisanal way, a very intuitive way. Um, but I think that the biggest, the two biggest things that my scientific background gave me um, are, is a process, the, the scientific method mm. for for like 
inquiry um, and answering questions. And so I'm pretty organized with what sorts of approaches we want to take, what the variables are, and how we might uh, achieve certain results. And, and then continuing to try and experiment with different ways of doing things by just always going back to that same kind of methodology of asking a question and trying to answer it. Um, and the second part of it is that I definitely have a lot more confidence when it comes to uh, more complex styles of, of fermentation. So, you know, we do we do a lot of uh, spontaneous or wild fermentations in-house and, you know, generally people... Uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, give people the advice that they should avoid doing that at such a big scale when there's a lot of juice mm, at risk mm-hmm. because this, you know, the fermentation can go this way or that way, or, you know, it can get too funky. And then what are you going to do with all that, all that juice that you just, you know, turned into vinegar or whatever it is. And I think that luckily with, with my background, you know, we can put enough controls in place that we feel pretty confident doing, you know, wild fermentations at pretty large scale compared to what um, other people do. And so a lot of what we're doing is, is the kinds of things that uh, fancier cider makers might be doing with that are at much smaller scales than, than we are. Um, but we're just doing it at, mm. at, at you know, at, at a scale that allows us to put it in 16 ounce cans and sell it at an affordable price. Um, I think because of some of the confidence that I have uh, from my biotech background. So yeah, I definitely think that I those are the two two ways. That's awesome. No, that's great. It's uh, allowing for happy accidents while still being a little bit controlled. It's exactly. you can taste it. You can taste it. Um, all right, we're gonna take a quick musical break, and then we come back. We're gonna talk about community and some of your mission statement outside of the cider itself. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on HRN.org. Dreaming is a waste of time I can't get you out 
Snacky Tunes. We are still chatting with Sohan Bhatt, co-founder of the Artifact Cider Project. And I want to talk a little bit about the cider community, um, because one of your mission statements is to create more diversity within the community, which would mean that the community itself maybe is not as diverse as you would like it to be. Can you talk about the current cider community and what you're trying to bring to the table that you don't already see there? Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, we take diversity as two different sorts of uh, approaches. So one is one is just to teach people that cider itself is a diverse beverage. You know, Mm -hmm. oftentimes you get, um, you know, pretty monolithic perspective on on what cider can be. And there are infinite possibilities of things that you can do with with the 7500 known apple varieties and the millions of billions of yeasts and bacteria and things that you can ferment with add in all the ways that you can do it. And there are still so many things that you can do with cider. And I think so often you get people saying like, Oh, this tastes like a cider or I don't like cider. And it's just usually because they haven't tried enough of them. And so we're always trying to have diversity in the portfolio. And then that kind of transcends into saying, well, you know, anybody can get into cider. Like it doesn't matter what your demographic background is or whatever it might be. You know, we happen to present our ciders in a pretty accessible format. You know, it's a little bit more expensive than the kind of bottom of the bottom of the barrel stuff, but um, it's also something that, you know, compared to like dropping 30 bucks on a bottle of wine or something is, is a big difference. And so by, by kind of, opening up our the the umbrella a little bit and trying to get people in in the door and saying hey look you might not like all of our ciders but you might like one of them um why don't you come in and try uh we're definitely trying to attract a different sort of um person into our into our fold you know i think like in any kind of craft beverage there's definitely a little bit of privilege and and you know Mm -hmm. um uh, and whiteness involved, you know, I don't want, that's maybe a little too blunt, but you know, you, you know, with the, with the, with the craft beer scene for a long time, it just felt like, you know, white guys with beards was like mm. the vibe. Um, and I think that sure. in many ways, the, 
the customers that were like in the tap rooms and stuff uh, mirrored uh, that sort of that sort of mm-hmm. um, demographic. And I think that like what's cool about cider already, just if you look at the numbers on a broader scale, is that it's already more balanced in terms of um, the genders that it, that people are into. So it's not like more men like it or more women like it or more you know, non-binary people like it or whatever. It's like pretty much everybody likes cider on an equal level. Um, different age groups like it, different demographics like it. And so uh, and a lot of it is just making the community a little bit more reflective of the people who already drink it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I think that like what's fun about it for us is that we, cider is such a food-friendly beverage that yeah. r- lately we've been trying to do it a lot through tap room kind of programming to be like, Hey, like, have you ever tried cider with Thai food? Have you ever tried cider with West African food? Like, why don't you come in? We've got a pop-up this week. You know, we've got um, people doing dumplings. We've got everything that's really exciting. That's like, maybe, maybe you wouldn't have seen this at a, at a tap room before, you know, and cider, cider can, can bring you in and make you feel like you're at home with that too. Um, yeah. Um, you alluded to this, but you call New England your home, and you also have two tap rooms, one on site and then one in Central Square, Cambridge. Shout out uh, to Boston and the Cambridge area. Um, what did you want to do in opening up these tasting rooms, and also how have you had to adjust your approach over the last year? Oh man. Yeah. So we opened the tasting rooms, uh, in Western mass first. Cause that was along with the, with our cellar, um, yep. we're based in, based in Western mass. And so that's close to our apple sources as well. Um, you know, we work, we work along the Connecticut river Valley and so it's into Southern Vermont and New Hampshire. Um, and so we have that one. So that one opened pre pandemic. Um, and then the idea with the central square one was, uh, to, to bring something to a community that was that's already diverse, but also is global um, in the sense that there are a lot of people that come through Boston and Cambridge from all over the world. And we wanted mm-hmm. to have a place where they could mm-hmm. understand that cider is, is part of this place. Um, you know, cider has, mm. to me at least, much more of a sense of place and much more like bang for your buck in terms of local terroir for us than say like New England IPA, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is like hops from New Zealand and like grain from Germany and maybe the water's local (laughs) and maybe the people are local, but it tastes like mangoes, you know, like it doesn't really evoke a sense of place as much as people might want it to. Um, Whereas like cider and apples, that's just like, it's here. It's already here. It's, you know, our apples are like from a hundred miles away and we can bring them here, but we can present them in unique and interesting ways. Um, the pandemic has been definitely been a challenge. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to be in the, any kind of industry, the hospitality industry of any kind, um, and not struggle. You know, it's it's been a tough road. I think people have been really awesome. The customers have been really awesome because what we did was we did takeaway and home delivery for a little while, um, and then we most recently reopened for um, in in the earlier part of the summer for for on site. And, um, you know, our, our customers have been awesome. You know, the guests have just like really been generous with, with like the, you know, with whatever we can do with however short staffed we might be and however under-resourced we might be right now. 
um, and how we're just trying to figure things out. But it hasn't really affected how we express like our mission and our ideas. Um, you know, like what I was just saying with the with the tap room, like pop ups and stuff. Um, we've had a lot of fun bringing in more diversity in terms of like food pop ups, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and trying to get people excited about that. Uh, I mean, we'll have to see what we do in the fall and, you know, with the Delta variant and stuff. But yeah, of course, you know, of course, we'll, I think we'll get there. It's OK. One of the things that I do like about the tap room and it reminded me a bit of um, Dogfish Head was the experiments and the tap room only, which you talked about a little bit and uh, how you were able to bring your scientific knowledge to it. But I like this idea of um, playing around cider and the possibility of apples and fermentations and flavors. Can you talk about your small batch program and what people can expect if they're going to get a tap room only type of, of uh, pint? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, there's only, there's a certain scale question when it comes to like what you can put in a can. Um, you know, we can, we can bring that down pretty low, um, but it's dependent on, on a lot of different factors. Um, but, you know, one of the biggest things that we try and do in our cellar is we're always trying to get better at making cider. You know, it's, it's, Mm. uh, it's a thing, it's an art and a skill that I'm still getting better at, that my team is getting better at, you know, we never really take an approach that like, you're, you're the best at it. You have to, you have to just keep going and keep improving. And so we do that through experimentation with different apples, different farms that we might work with, with different approaches and so those, th- that experimentation tends to become what we call seller projects. Um, these are generally one-off ciders that I would almost call like art ciders. They're not even craft mm. ciders. They're like, they exist as a crystallization of a time and a place and an approach that usually can only be done once. Um, you know, an example of this would be that, uh, you know, I, I, uh, a couple of years ago, I was lucky to visit um, the West Country in England, and there was a, a ver- there's an eccentric cider maker there named Roger Wilkins, and I, you know, I really had an amazing and fun and funny experience while I was there. But one of the things that I noted was his extremely hands off approach with making cider. It was like basically just juice comes in, puts it in some tanks outside, lets it sit there for a year it travels through some hoses that have probably never been cleaned into some barrels and then people drink it. Um, and I was like, how is it possible? You know, it goes against everything that you're taught in terms of the basics mm-hmm. of fermentation to, and, and production, you know, like the way you want to produce something in a clean way or whatever to just approach it that way. And so what we did was we took, you know, European or especially Brit- British, um, kind of high tannin apples are, are pretty hard to come by and you have to pay a pretty high premium for them. And we were lucky to get some of those varieties from a, from an awesome uh, orchard in Vermont called the Scott farm. And so these are like a rarest apples we can get. We're paying five times more for that, for those fruit than we are for anything else. And we decided to ferment it outside and let it sit there for an entire year through the snow, through the rain, through heat mm. wave, um, you know, in a very, in a sealed, in a sealed plastic or poly tank, exactly the same way that, that Roger did it. And, and then brought it inside and kind of just kegged it off. And, and 
and it's available in our tap room now. And the funny thing about it is like, it's surprisingly delicate and subtle compared to, you know, what Roger does, which is a lot more bold and funky. Um, so I don't really know how, what the relationship is between the two. Maybe our Floro is just a little bit weaker than his or something, but um, you know, that's the kind of experimentation mm. that we're trying to do and the kinds of things that you might be able to try, you know, we're not at a point where we can leave giant tanks outside to sit for a year before we can can it off and sell it to people. But, you know, we can definitely do it in a smaller tank and and experiment with that. Well, maybe your uh, lines are too clean and you got to let them, uh, you got to let them gunk up a little bit to get. Yeah. It just needs a couple more decades outside, I think. And then we'll get a couple more decades of of inline gunk. Um, (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about the design of the cans because they're definitely eye-catching and unique, um, which, again, goes back a little bit to that marketing shelf space, making sure that people go like, oh, yeah, I'll stock it. If nothing more than I just like the design of of the product. How do they come about? Who does your work? Um, what goes into making a different label and naming it as well? Because the names are Wolf of the Door, Magic Hour, Slow Down. They're all great names to boot. Yeah, thanks. Um, so there's, I mean, it's it's a little bit of a circuitous process for us when it comes to coming up with the the actual names and the branding and stuff. Uh, Rachel Bennett, who's our like director of brand and storytelling, um, and I generally collaborate on those. Um, you know, we work with a variety of of designers. Um, you know, locally, some that are from you know kind of far away. It depends on what the cider is and what kind of vibe we're going for. Um, you know, I think that a general philosophy to like the approach to, um, at least the, the designs with the ciders is we're trying to evoke a bit of a sense of place. So the Northeast, um, vibes, whether that's like connecting to some concept in the Northeast, uh, what we call the new Northeast. So like something like Buffalo Platte or something like pine trees or oysters or, you know, the digital kind of MIT, you know, we're, we're near MIT in Cambridge. Like, you know, we have like static on one, you know, it's, it's evoking a, a connection to place, but also in many ways we're trying to make like imagine a world where cider was just considered like a normal beverage that you would have along with beer or wine. Like it's in the same conversation all the time, you know, like let's just fast forward to that time and what mm. sorts of designs would we make? if we were living in that time. So, you know, I think that instead of looking at it like, Oh, we got to like knock off like the like craft beer vibe, or even now the kind of natural wine vibe, we're kind of just trying to live in a place where cider is already a normal part of the, of the culture and whatever that future world is, that's where these, that's where a lot of the design comes from. Um, And then in terms of the cider names, it all kind of depends on what, what the inspiration of the cider is. Some are connected directly to the liquid um, and some are connected. A lot of them are actually connected to music. Um, you know, whether it's a musical inspiration directly, like a song, um, you know, I was, I was really, I was like, I was obsessed with Casey Musgraves, like golden hour album. Mm-hmm. Um, when it first, when it first hit, and I don't know what it was. I was just like mesmerized by it. And so Magic Hour is just a, is an homage to her Golden Hour um, album because I was listening. The, the song Golden Hour was playing when a couple of different influences related to 
cider making, like, oh, I want to blend something like this. And I wanted to, what if we made it taste like this? Or what if I had a cider for this moment, which was, you know, four thirty, five o'clock driving home, mm-hmm. you know, sitting in traffic. And I was like, there's a certain kind of cider I want at the end of this trip. And that song mm-hmm. was playing and it was like, all of this comes together in this moment. Um, and other ones are more like related to the statement. So, you know, Wolf at the Door, for example, is is named after um, the last song on Hail to the Thief um, for, I, from Radiohead, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. at the time, you know, when we first when we released it in 2017 was, you know, directly related to the to the presidential election of 2016. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, there was just a certain kind of feeling that I had and I wanted to make a cider that didn't pander to the kind of like normie customer. I wanted to just make a cider that was for me. <laughs> and that's kind of where Wolf at the Door came from. Um, and so that's, you know, that they were, and I was also like feeling pretty hopeless and I wanted to make something. I was like, look, this could be the last year. Like, fuck it. Let's just make a cider that we want. <laughs> um, and that's kind of where Wolf <laughs> at the Door came from. So, you know, it, it, it all, it all kind of connects back to, the idea of like creating a sense of place both through visual and through the liquid itself. So you sort of beat me to the punch for my last question, but music is such a big influence on your thinking process, the creative process, everything down from the name um, design. I'd love to know what you listen to when you're brewing. And then what do you listen to when you're, trying a cider for the first time okay i gotta think about this one um (laughs) well when we're when we're making when we're making cider it's it can it really is all over the place um you know there's there's definitely like a certain vibe um to a day or to you know with especially when you're dealing with fermentation wild fermentation where it can like, you can walk in and it'll be like, oh man, I'm going to have to work hard today. Or it can mm. be like, this is the best day ever. And let's play, let's play something that that's going to, um, that's going to like keep us going. I do, you know, uh, in the cellar, we definitely listen to a lot of jazz. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I like, I like, um, I like like bebop. Uh, so it's a, it's a mm. lot of like kind of fifties, sixties, Miles Davis, um, John Coltrane kind of stuff. Um, that's, that's pretty common in the cellar. Um, and then, and, or like, you know, if depending on the day, it might even be like death metal. Um, you know, it's kind of all over the place. Um, and then drinking cider, I generally am listening to much more relaxed, uh, relaxed music. So, you know, I, man, I, I listen to a little bit of everything and I hate saying that. Um, but you know, it can range anything from something like Casey Musgraves to, you know, some more, more obscure, uh, more obscure kind of like indie music. Um, you know, I, I listen to a lot of like the national, um, I, I like listening to the national and drinking cider. Mm-hmm. Those two go, go pretty well together. Yeah, I I think that 100% makes sense. Um, Well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. 
thank you for all the insights and uh, thank you for the delicious cider. Uh, again, um, I don't just say it, but I really loved it and drank all the cans, not at once. Because with a newborn, I'd be face asleep at the kitchen table. Um, but hopefully you'll make it back out to uh, the Northeast and swing by the tap room, have some food, try some of your experiments. Yeah, I would love to have you. And thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, listen, we have a live performance and then we have another song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on HRN.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago. 
before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old-world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hello, and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are at the legendary Danger Bird Records studio in beautiful Silver Lake. <laughs> we are with Tropa Mahika, the Pacheco brothers, David and Renee. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. That's Renee's mating call. We're actually only doing answers uh, in whistle form only, so you are all set. Interesting. Interesting insight. Um, so, so leave the smoke signals outside. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you guys are brothers. Uh, who's the older brother? Uh, we like to play around with people, so uh, depends depends on the day of the week. Depends so, on the day. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> Renee could be the older one, sometimes I could be the older one. All right, um, so did you guys grow up playing together when you guys start getting into music? Mom and dad into music, grandpa, grandma into music? No, we were just always together. Um, we grew up together, bonded at a very early age. And and as we became teenagers, we, we went our of. own separate routes, but we were eventually reunited, not just by music, but also by marijuana. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, Renee caught me uh, smoking weed. I started smoking <laughs> weed a little bit before him, and uh, I would smoke it outside of the house. It smelled and, good. And then he's just like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, fuck. And I'm like, you want to try it? And, uh, and then <laughs> If it was, you don't even try it, I'm going to tell my mom. Oh yeah, that's always a good thing, you know. As as a brother, the way they let your let your brother do things, be like, I'm gonna tell mom and dad. Yeah, and then uh, and then we had a day where we both stitched, and uh, we bought like a gram of. Um, at the time, there was it wasn't clinical weed. It was um, yeah. you either got like a pretendo or like uh or like chronic was the chronic. main thing, and Kush was coming out. Kush oh, was yeah. like twenty five bucks yeah. a gram. Or we something. got chronic though, and it's the best I've ever heard. The Doors uh, Riders on the Storm. Yeah. yeah, I think the Doors were meant for uh, smoking weed or yeah, we maybe. Were we got to do the stoner things, you know? Yeah, because, I mean, I, I've been smoking weed long enough, and, I mean, there's a lot of people out there who smoke weed, like, like at, at, in big amounts, to the point where, like, the best high you're ever going to get was when you first tried it. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, because, man, those were one of the days where I was like, oh, man, this is something. Now I'm just like, I can, like you know, function with it. So it's a little different. But when, when I get to remember back to those days, riding on the storms, leaning my head, thinking I'm floating, but I'm falling off the couch. You know, it was cool, man. It's cool. <laughs> yeah. So when did you guys go from smoking weed and listening to music to smoking weed and making music? Uh, right away. Um, once we, once like, we kind of were, like, both smoking weed, because at the time, like, it was, it was still taboo. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, you're not supposed to be smoking weed. Once we started doing that... Um, Especially we, with, like, a Mexican family. Yeah, we started, we started bonding, and, like, our interests started kind of bonding as well, you know, forming together, and... And I just, and we like, would, I, we I got go to shows just to smoke weed sometimes. Yeah, because you know like, I couldn't smoke at the house, and like I wasn't young enough to like go my or I wasn't old enough to go to my own places. But you're like, let just, let him take me to shows. It's a safe spot. Yeah, yeah we kind of. To, we would go to places like the Smell or like backyard shows or oh, like yeah. Space. Um, it's not there anymore, but uh, right there um, on Glendale used to be right there. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we would go to those spots. They were all ages spots, and you could smoke and yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, like anybody who's like trying to try something new outside of your limits, you know, you're you're gonna end up betraying either your parents' trust a little bit, you know. Yeah. Because you know they they have their way of. But it's not supposed yeah. to be mean. It's just yeah, you gotta yeah. be. You gotta yeah, be I didn't do it as an offense to them. I yeah. just really dug it. It was fun. <laughs> Yeah, it uh, was. And it kept me out of trouble. <laughs> so uh, being Mexican and, like, the punk rock scene, like, with the yeah. smell, things like that, which is not always... I mean, it's n- mostly white at times, like, those, like, DIY underground scenes. Yeah. Where did you guys feel that you fit in? What did you guys want to do musically? Like, what did you... Or did you just never even see that because you both... You, it was just like, we love the music. Race is not an issue at all. Yeah, surprisingly for us, yeah. it was never an issue. Like, um, we would see, like, it wasn't until we went to college and we took our first, like, Chicano Studies yeah. class yeah. that we started, like, I, I blame college, actually, for, like, making no. us racist. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know racism existed until I went to college. No, it's no. kind of true. Like, you know, you understand, like, uh, so, like, uh, like social like it, structures. It, it leaves and, you mad, but, I mean, so. But it, it makes it, sense. If you, yeah. if, you, if you can, um, if you can, like, find a. Uh, solution to like to you know like know that about you and kind of go your way and like it kind of makes you stronger you know like whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger or stranger so so we embraced like uh, all types of music like when we were going to the smell this was around the time when like Mika Miko and Noage were blowing up yeah Yeah, because Uh, when we we late 2000s yeah yeah Yeah, because being Mexican in the punk scene like that's all I saw at backyard shows. Like everybody, you know, like we yeah. all looked like. I remember each other. we saw Fiddler like at the Five Star oh, Bar. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And but it was like our our interest in music that took us other, uh, you know, other places, and we weren't really thinking like racism, racism. We were just and, very and, much and thinking melodies, cool structures, about, rhythms. The cool thing about the LA underground scene was that it was a lot different than the East LA backyard punk scene because in the East LA backyard punk scene, it was very like everything was the same. It felt like everybody was trying to sound either as hard and heavy as you could or as skull as you could, but with like places like the Smell and Paris Space or like the little places that were around at the time, the, the Echo Curio on Sunset, or there was the OutK Gallery right there on Glendale too. Yeah, Those places true. like booked a lot of different types of bands. Like, you know, you had the Meishi or you had like, oh, yeah. um, you heard of them? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah like, I remember so when Echo was, Park was like starting to pick up its pace before, like, for like, this like, like, like at its, that at its birth of gentrification. Like you yeah. know, but like we didn't even know that term at the time. We just knew that like As there was met. something yeah. going on. And we we're like, and then it was until later we're like, oh, that's yeah. a term for that. Yeah, because like, we were still kids. You know, as kids, you grow up, you're sort of thinking like naive. everything's pretty, everything's beautiful, the world, and then you sort of learn the truth a little bit here and there, and you're kind of like, oh shit. And so that 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 doesn't like we tried not to let that affect us as creatives we try to just sort of like understand that you know um understand the truth and let that help us continue to grow as creatives awesome well let's hear a song and then we're gonna get back into when we come back we'll talk about the first band and how you guys started to start defining your sound yeah uh, definitely. what's the first song you guys are gonna play uh we're gonna the first song we're gonna play is called uh, morena okay cool yeah any story behind it uh morena it actually started with the riff that Jason would play uh, on uh, like at sound checks, and, and I'm like, hey, play that riff again, and then we wrote a melody around it and some chord structure. Oh yeah, around do you want to shout out the other two guys in the room? Yeah, so we have Davis on piano. Uh, he plays piano, keyboard, uh, or like synth, organ kind of sounds, uh, and then uh, Jason, who's been with us, he's actually been a fan of of our music since like before Tropa Magica, and he he once posted a video on Instagram where he's uh, playing one of our songs, and then. Four months later, he joined the band. That has got to be the most awesome, surreal. (laughs) That was a good day. That was a good call or email, right? It's funny because he was joking around saying, oh, you're hired. And four months later, sure enough. (laughs) Man. Hey, dream big. You never know. You never know. Take a risk. All right, here we go. 
uh, Tropa, Tropa Magica live on Snacky Tunes at Danger Bird Record Studios.
Ooh, that rips. Ooh, that rips real hard. Thank you. Um, so before you were the band that you are now, you actually had an earlier iteration, uh, The Commons. Yeah. And uh, you guys, in addition, that also sort of defined a new type of sound um, that was sort of like cumbia, but like your own sort of like punk rock thing. So how did you guys start your first band? When did you guys decide that you wanted to play together? And then how did you start to define your sound, especially when it was something completely new? We decided to play together when David needed a drummer. Oh. And I already had been practicing drums myself. And you had the blackmail weed thing on it, too. <laughs> so everything fell into place from there. Yeah, and then like coming out of the, like experiencing the LA scene around that time, you know, like late 2000s, you know, before 2010, um, it was very interesting because at that same time we started, we went to college, you know, we had dropped out of like college, like community college, and we were just working, trying to do music. And, yeah. uh, and then we decided to go back to school. And it was around that time where we started like um, kind of like embracing our roots more and trying to like find like our, our identity per se. And um, we started listening to more of uh, like, I guess like regional music, you know, like uh, the Ruta Chicha had a big influence on us, but since we had like all this, like these years of experience with bands like Mika Miko, Meishi, you know, um, it, we weren't able to, we weren't going to be able to do it authentically anymore. So at that point, it just that kinda, punk had seeped in. Yeah. At that I point mean, we were like, we were trying to get inside of you. We were trying to be noage for a good while. Like we were trying to do it as a two piece and then, Ooh. yeah, I and that was hard. Yeah, Kumi is a two-piece. I don't know if that's... Yeah, you need the bass. You need that bass. You need that driving bass. <laughs> and, um, and then we went through like a dozen basses, uh, just trying to like gel, find our sound and... Um, find our voice. Yeah. yeah it it took us a lot of ingesting to do. We were very curious, so we, we were um, discuss, um, experiencing a lot of different bands, going to different... You know, just yeah. going to different areas that... Yeah. That, um, and then Boyle Heights, that's when we started noticing uh, more like... Latino bands, like people that like had similar backgrounds, like as us, where but it was kind of weird because we felt like outcast there because we felt like the music we like was too white, you know, like and they were more like hardcore, like rootsy, like you know, like you got to play cumbia straight up like this, <laughs> and we felt very like, oh, like but left, I like fucking distortion, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, this hit. Yeah. I mean, yeah. did you find as you were sort of defining yourself and you found yourself one foot in, you know, the punk scene? Uh, which is like a, the white scene and then like the Boyle Heights, which is more of yeah. the Mexican scene. Like, how long did it take for you to sort of find comfortability and acceptance with the music you were making? Like, when did that start to gel? Three years. It was, yeah. uh, with the comments, it was three years. It wasn't until we saw this band called uh, Cumbia Queers from Argentina. They mm -hmm. came to to Boyle Heights. They played at this little dive bar. And um, and they, they do like, it's like a bunch of, girls you know ladies women they they do the the cumbia style and it's very aggressive like you know with distortion guitar distorted guitars um since um they I don't did think a, it's aggressive i just think it's unapologetic yeah like they're gonna they, do what they're there to do they and did what they like wanted a, to hear they did a cumbia version of iron man but black sabbath and that's when renee and i looked at each other and we were just like boom like light bulb went on and it's like it's okay to be different like yeah because, because prior to hearing them um play cumbia in that in that in that form in that style 
in which it wasn't just like your typical clean or not typical. That's that's messed up. Just like it wasn't your clean, traditional. Yeah, it wasn't your cut clean, you know, form of cumbia. This was something a lot more grittier and something that we could accept as like uh, more punk, cumbia punk, us. you know. Yeah. Um, that attitude like just really called to us and let us know like. It's okay what you're doing, you know, like you, you guys aren't playing it the way it's supposed to be sounding, but through hearing them, it was like a beautiful blessing, like keep doing it, keep yeah, doing it, because they did a cover of Iron Man in a cumbia, you know, cumbia style. I'd never heard anything like so that. So it's like, and now, so now for you, those of y'all that are listening that don't necessarily know what cumbia is, um, it's very defined by, it's very much defined by its uh, bass rhythms and its percussions, and the percussions would be very much like a, a guido sound, which sounds like a so any song that's on like four four, you you can turn it into cumbia. I mean, you guys have been known to cover Nirvana. Yeah, yeah we covered yeah. some Nirvana songs. We did. Um, I mean, we joked around and played a bunch of different little cumbia melodies. Now, uh, you did the Commons for a while. Six years. Six years, and then you decided to change to Tropa Magica. What made the change? Why did you want to change? And was it hard to, I mean, to rebrand yourself as a band? Uh, but not changing like who you guys are. It was like you like one guy left. Yeah. Like what made you want to decide um, to change it up, and and how did the fans, how did the people who loved you guys, deal with that as well? So this is a three part question. Three part question. So um, what made you want to change? What made us want to change? How did that change go, and how did the fans take it? Yeah. My answer for the first one might be different to David's, but for me it was just very uh, simple. It was an evolution. When we started the first band, it was uh, the, the first name that, or when we started the Commons, the name was just something we grabbed really quick and ran with it because we needed a name. But as we kept growing well, well, as musicians. What we kind of embraced was like, you know, it wasn't the name that was going to define us. It was our sound that was going to define us. And yeah. And so afterwards we realized like, okay, now we want to switch it up. Because for me, like we had changed as musicians, our sound completely shifted. And so it, it was like. David came up to me and was like, what do you think about changing the band name to this? And at first I struggled, but it immediately became clear to me. It's like, yeah, we've become something else. Mm. We should call ourselves for something. Because now we were able to name ourselves as opposed to just take whatever name we could have. Mm. Yeah, so we, we had a more with... bigger sense of purpose, and we knew what we wanted out of what we were going to continue to do. Yeah, because with the Commons, um, what happened was that we had another band called Hello, My Name is Red. Um, the acronym for that was like HMNR, and uh, we did that for four years, and then we stopped that band to do the Commons, and we had a radio show at KXIU, and they were like, so what should we bill you guys under? And we're like, okay, well, just, we threw that name out there, and then it just kind of stuck. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because we played a show once uh, right before we became the Commons as a no-name band, <laughs> 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 where I did a song without drums. It yeah, was really awkward. What, what inspired the shift, too, was also like, you know, um, 2017 for the Commons, our band, it was like, it was a really great year. We played Coachella, you know, we had done Tropicalia. We got a lot of good press, LA Weekly, you know, LA Times were talking about our band. And to me, it felt like, it It felt like, all right, what are we going to do as a band that's going to surpass this, that's going to, you know, kind of create the next thing? And, and and in my head, it's just like, there's nothing. We're like, what, we're going to win a Grammy as the Commons? And I, sure. I, I didn't feel that, like that was going to happen with the Commons, so... I was just like, you know, just reinvent ourselves, let it die so that something stronger could come out of it. Like a Pajonix, Phoenix. From the ashes. Yeah. From the fans. 
the fans come with you? Um, slowly, yeah. Like I think now, like it's gaining more legitimacy as like we got booked for like Desert Days. You know, we're yeah. Doing, I, I think it just took it. a little while because they they, they didn't they know what to, songs they, they were going to come in here. It, you know? They were they were used to hearing the songs that we yeah, had laid yeah, out yeah. for them. But until now, now that we like been producing some work for them to hear, I, I feel like they're kind of like they're okay. The water's it, not that cold. I'm down to dip in. Yeah. yeah, and then we're touring, and so as people are more getting more excited, like, oh, like we haven't toured like since last year, and we we were abandoned like constantly tours. So yeah, like, us now releasing an an EP singles and an LP coming out. Well, which by the time this airs, it should already be out. It, it creates definitely like a foundation for which previous fans can now base their judgment. Because before, it's just like, oh my God, they're just changing. And there was nothing to back it up unless you're like <laughs> diehard fan, yeah. which we do have our, some. Our, our first uh, show to an audience of Tropa Magica, uh, there were people who showed up. But nobody knew what they were in for. And so it, they didn't know exactly how but, to react. But they, but they were down. <laughs> yeah. They were down and swim with this. Um, awesome. All right. Well, let's hear our next song. What are we going to hear? Uh, the next song is going to be Cupa Cabras to give you an example of the psychedelic cumbia punk version of what we do. Awesome. All right. Cupa Cabras. Here we go.
Oh man, that rips. <laughs> it rips so good. Um, so I want to go back a little bit into uh, the process of inventing a new sound. Okay. Um, because I know we touched on it a little bit in the last segment, but I really don't want to undermine or underplay really how amazing it is to come up with something that unique. And in setting out to do this new sound, um, did you guys have a conversation about it? Did you guys go, we want to do it? And because I know that you, you've named it of psychedelic cumbia punk. Um, like, when did you realize that you were on this new journey? When did you realize that you had this new sound that did take from, you know, the traditional cumbia sound and the, the backyard punk scene? That, I think, started with the song called Psychedelic Dream, in which um, it was very guitar-oriented, and then Renee began playing this drum that kind of became our signature kind of sound, guitar and drum sound. Which is like what you call like what do you call that like a soca no? It's not what I call it. It's what it's called. It's called soca. It's and like a Jamaican. A lot of people when they hear it they'll think oh it's reggaeton. Yeah. But no hell no reggaeton took it from soca. <laughs> yeah. And um, but it was definitely a process. And once once we got in that vibe of like okay this is our sound like it just like. Yeah, and that was always our goal because I feel like any great band, you, you recognize them by their sound, you know? You don't yeah. recognize them by their name or their logo. Like, I mean, that's obviously that's a factor. Like, you know, Rolling Stones have the tongue or something. The Doors have their logo. But you recognize their sound. And then for us, that was very important. Like, we need to develop a sound that's ours. And so, I mean, we're like, we were we were performing with bands like Chicano Batman, you know? Um, yeah. Um, just like all sorts of bands that were, like, blowing up. And so the competition was real, you know. And, but it was also very cool to see, like, bands like Chicago Batman, like, touring with Jack White and, like, kind of demonstrating that, like, hey, like, like making it as a musician is, like, very possible, you know, coming from East L.A. And so... I mean, as you've seen the demographics in America change, because obviously growing up in L.A. and East L.A., yeah, you know, there's a Hispanic, Mexican... Yeah, like it's so it's, you don't feel like a, a minority in Southern California, right? But once you get out, you know, yeah. uh, oh, and as you see different cities change with different people, do you find more acceptance across uh, the country for your music, or does does that not even play into it? Like you just you know now because you have such a unique sound and are well known, it doesn't matter what the community is; people just love the music. I think we were um, no, it does a little bit because when we were the Commons, yeah. Like, you're gonna think like, oh, this might be like a, a garage white, band or something. White boys garage band, but, but now you hear Trova Monica, then, you know, you might think like, oh, you know, like, to, the, like maybe the carnival's in town. Yeah. You know? uh, <laughs> uh, and um, what also what, what we were lucky and fortunate and blessed with is that like, you know, we met good like networks. You know, like Burger Records was really interested oh, yeah. in us when, like, this is like 2014, and like you know they were they were still doing a lot of stuff, and so when we first toured. <laughs> they they presented the tour, which was, like, really cool because people would come out to shows because we were a burger band, you know, yeah. quote-unquote. Like, we were a burger band, and, uh, and they had no idea what we sounded like until they saw, like, like a poster in their local, like, you know, local community, and they're like, hey, there's a burger band. And then they look us up, and like, you know, you guys don't sound like a burger band or look like a burger band. I mean, I have to imagine that the vibe when you guys jump on, especially your, like, normal indie punk show... Mm probably gets a little bit more dancey, a little bit more... Like, do you see kids who normally would maybe just be arms folded or a little bit more stoic, get a little bit more loose? You know, it's a trip, because when we toured with Fiddler, 
we did like three dates with them in San Francisco, Santa Cruz, and, yeah. and Seattle. And you know, their their audience is predominantly like white audience, I would yeah. assume. But they have like a good Latino yeah. audience. They have a diverse audience, but it's predominantly white. Yeah. And uh, it was but so they were, funny watching them dance cumbia. Yeah, they like they got down like you know. It's like the, but it's their like, enthusiasm was just so that like that. That's at the end of the day, like what you give it up to. Like it's not to make fun of them, you know. Like why pointed that out? It's just that their enthusiasm was in the right place. It's like us like dancing to bands like like we were saying earlier, like Mika Miko and stuff, and like being brown kids, you know, dancing to like. Yeah, and it's like that's like yeah, we like, vice versa. Yeah, now. we look like a dog trio, you know, <laughs> causing an earthquake. <laughs> uh, Pokemon yeah. reference, hey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me tell you about a kid that turns into a car one day. <laughs> Inside joke. Um, and so uh, now that you guys, you got the new album coming out, uh, you know, you're playing festivals as the new band. Where do you, where, like, where do you see the band going? Where do you want to go? Because now that you've hit the reset button, like, like you said, you did Coachella, you got people talking about you, but, you know, obviously you want to get that with the new band, but then how do you go beyond what you did with the Commons? Leave the U.S. Yeah. Tour internationally. That's the goal, I mean, to become an international band where we tour Europe, Mexico, South America, because um, I feel like once you break over there in those areas... Then when we come back to the states, it'll be like it's it's just like people like are followers sometimes, you know, which is kind of sucks. But like it's like mass thinking, you know, like group think, and it's like you know, if everybody you're not, thinks hey, you're not gonna change history. Yeah. you know what I mean. Like yeah, it is so, what it is. So and then like in a sense, like you gotta go with the flow. Yeah, it's, it's like they told Bruce Lee, you know, like yeah, it's like, it's like but everybody fight the water. But, be but the water. this is not to say that anybody that's like picking up to what we're doing right now, like that we categorize you under that. Like now, like we really appreciate like everybody that's tuning into Droba Mahika. Like we have a lot of new people that are tuning into it for the first time who don't even know that we had another band which is really cool you that's know? bonus music yeah you know where you get in the band you go like wait they had another band with three exactly albums, but, no. but the funny thing is that like like the moment we decided to call it Tropa Magica everyone was like oh my god no it was like bitch when we were the commons what where was that shit at <laughs> so y'all gotta y'all gotta lay off and you know just chill out let the current flow calm the fuck down but now they're with you and now they're gonna see you yeah, well definitely. I mean it, whether, whether, whether they're with us or they're not like like we appreciate those who do and reach out to us but like I've told David like you know like cause when David and I we practice by ourselves like just doing stuff whether there's an audience or not we're gonna Give it our all. I mean, I'm seeing it today. So that's like, that's 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 something that's just beautiful. And like, for those who do ride along the journey, thank you, appreciate you, and there's more to come. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you guys. I want to make sure we have enough time for one more song. But where can people get the new album? Where can people find you online? People can find us on uh, com or like on anything like all social media, Spotify, iTunes. LinkedIn for the classy people. Just <laughs> kidding. Just kidding. Just I don't kidding. Do just kidding. <laughs> Um, so what are you going to take us out with? Uh, we're going to take you out with a little medley. That's, it's like an instrumental medley. Well, the first part is actually from the new album. It's called Ya Viejo. And then it's going to go into a... We wrote it to our older selves. Yeah, this is a song that Renee and I like, wrote. The day we're hunched over, gray hair, and just like, yeah. it's just like you know, just yeah. like, like this is th- this is what we wrote. Like when when our when our Quincy Jones documentary exactly. Comes out. Yeah, uh, see, <laughs> yeah, because the Quincy Jones uh, documentary came Have out, seen and it? it's really and it's really more about his yeah. final act, reminiscing on his first acts, first and second act. Okay. But I really just appreciated this idea of like, hey, you got to make art and music 
that your future self has to live up to. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, I want to do thank, it for posterity. Uh, Andy Dangerbird Records. Thank you, Andy, for making it sound good. Woo! Put some reverb on it. And <laughs> thank you to Heritage Radio. Uh, this is Snacky Tunes. Tropa Magica. See you next week. One last sip of beer before here we go.
talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.